God is a giver. God gives gifts. James, the brother of Jesus, says that every good and perfect gift comes down to us from him, our Father of lights. This is true, I think, in the here and now. We can, we can believe that, we can live that in our own lives. Uh, you all know um, my, my children, Nathan and Olive. Nathan is named um, Nathan because the Hebrew word, uh, the Hebrew name Nathan means gift. And if we'd named him Nathaniel, that would mean that gift of God. But that's how we understand him. And Olive is a gift from God too, just because we didn't name her that. doesn't mean she's not. Um, so that's sort of an immediate sense. But in an even broader and wider sense, everything is a gift from God. Because everything comes from God. Every good thing comes from God. He is not just the giver of this and that. He's the source of all thises and thatses for all time. The ground and the foundation, the, the fountainhead of all creation. And we see that in the stories of Genesis 1, which we did last week, and Genesis 2 this week. God gives gifts, and that's my theme for this morning. Now, Genesis 2 is not, strictly speaking, episode 2 in a chronological sense. We looked last week at Genesis 1, and that tells us about the creation of humanity. And this story tells us the creation of humanity again. And you may or may not have noticed that there are some differences in the way the story is told. I want to pick up on a couple of those differences because it's important to be able to note why those differences exist. Instead, it's more like when you read the Gospel of Luke, say, and then put that alongside the Gospel of John, you have the same story being told. You have the story of Jesus and his death, his life, death, resurrection, but you have it told from a different angle. And so here we've got a second story about the creation of humanity told from a different angle. So how does God create humanity? Verse 7 here says, The Lord formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. So the first thing I want to talk about in terms of the gifts of God is that God gives us life and that the giving of life from God is not, again, some totally external thing where he waves a wand and bejing this happens. God gifts us life in an act of intimacy with him. Let's look at that. Image again, God breathes into, forms the man from dust and breathes into his nostrils the breath of life. You may know that the Hebrew word for breath, ruach, is the same word as the Hebrew word for wind 
and for spirit. So when God creates humanity, God breathes, uh, blows into, in spirit, the dust and makes a human. You might have heard, you might have heard of or known or met um, the musician Strawn, right? He's come and spoken here a couple of times and played music for us. He's got an awesome image of this. He says that this is almost like God coming face to face with the ground and giving the ground a hongi, you know? Māori greeting, we press the nose and the forehead together. And it took me a long time into my life to know that the purpose wasn't just the touch of that. The purpose of a hongi is to share in the breath of life. You greet one another and you share each other's breath in that space. And Strawn illustrates this passage that way. He says, it's like God pressed his, his nose and his forehead to the ground and breathed the breath of life. And that began this thing called communion with God. It's close, it's personal, it's intimate. And this is not just uh, the beginning point and then God disappears Paul will say to the, the Athenians uh, that God is the one in whom we live, move, and have our being. God's creative act is not once and done. It's ongoing. It's sustaining. God gifts us life by his own breath. There's another gift in this passage. And this is where one of these differences comes in. You might notice that what we've read this morning says that there was no plant, there were no plants, there was no vegetation on the earth, and God came and formed the man out of dust. But in last week's creation story, we had God forming things in a very distinct pattern, a, a linear sort of progression. And the, the plants came first in that story. What does this tell us? We have to be able to recognize the poetic nature of this. We have to be able to hold that open and say, God, I don't know exactly why that is an apparent contradiction, but I still believe that you've got a truth to tell me. Well, in Genesis 1, God laid the foundations of the earth and then he sort of constructed the earth with the land and the sea and, and a dome over top of it. And uh, he populated it with all this beautiful uh, imagery and, and these beautiful plants and animals. And then right in the middle, he placed humanity. And one of the ways that we can understand and interpret that is it's drawing on ancient understandings of how to build a temple. So in the ancient world, you want to worship a god, you create a temple. You lay the foundation, you put up the walls and put a roof over it, you adorn it, make it beautiful, and then in the center you place the image of the god you intend to worship. And so that's what the way Genesis 1 understands this creation. And in that sense, humans are kind of put there for the benefit of this wider creation. Humans are 
the, the sort of centerpiece. They're the, the perfection of this creation because it's God putting his own image into this cosmic temple. But here in Genesis 2, we have that process partially reversed. Humanity is formed out of the earth before the rest of creation has been established. There, were no, there was no garden and there were no plants. Humanity itself wasn't even complete yet because there was no woman. It says God made this garden and then put the man he'd already made into it. We've pivoted to see the story from a different angle. Where in Genesis 1, God is saying this is humanity given for creation. Here, I think we get to see that creation is given to humanity. That the world, the created world is for us. To paraphrase sort of Jesus' words on the Sabbath, right? He gets challenged on the Sabbath and he says, Don't you know that the Sabbath was not, that man was not made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath was made for man? I think we can understand this here. Creation, we weren't just made for creation, although we were. We can also understand it that creation was made for us. So if you, like me, love going for a walk in the bush or you find yourself awed by the sight of sort of snowy mountains or when you step out onto the beach and you get that sort of inhalation of fresh sea air, you find yourself refreshed and you find yourself thinking, man, this, there's just something incredibly beautiful about this. I don't think that's an accident. I think in some sense, God has made the world for us. It's a gift. God is a God of gifts. He's given us the breath of life. And he's given us the world. And when what's the next part of this creation story? Adam has been placed into the garden. And God says, it is not good for man to be alone. Adam needs, according to the scripture, a helper. So God brings all the animals into the garden. And, uh, and Adam has the responsibility, the duty, the, the privilege to name them. He names all the animals. But none of them are suitable for him as the text says, as a helper. So from verse 21, it says, The Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. When you notice again, this can sound so strange to modern ears, right? But notice again the intimacy of this image. The man is laid down into a deep sleep, and God sort of reaches in and pulls out this rib and makes the woman. 
And she becomes the person we now, we, we now refer to as Eve. And when Adam wakes up, he says, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And the text goes on to say, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is not my main point, but I want to say a quick word about a word, the word helper. says that there was no helper for Adam and that Eve was made as a helper. That's what the text says. And often this has been used to suggest that women exist almost as a supplement to or a servant to men. And This opens up a whole lot of questions that you might want to ask, and I'm not going to go into all of them, about what the New Testament says about male and female and marriage. I don't know how the ladies in the room feel about that passage. I'm not a lady. I don't know. But I just want to note that the Hebrew word... For helper is etza. And it is used multiple times in the Old Testament. Twice to refer to Eve. Three times it's used to describe a powerful nation that Israel needs to help them because they're under oppression. We might say that the Ukraine needs an etza right now because they're under attack from a a big foreign force that they don't really have the hope of fighting off on their own. They need an etzer. And 16 times in Scripture, the word etzer refers to God. God is our help in a time of trouble. We pray, God help me. God is our help. He is the one who helps his people. Now that fact is what I want to leave you with. And that may not resolve all of your questions about this text or about male and female, but I only leave it here to say that if God describes the woman as an etza, a helper, he is not denigrating them. This is not a matter of lesser value or lesser position within the world. It's a word he uses in his scriptures to describe himself and his relationship to his people. It's a word that describes someone warrior-like who is ready to come to someone else's aid. Like I said, this is not really the point of the story. In fact, 
in a broader sense, I want to say that we have in this text a re-emphasis of what we learn in chapter 1, that together, male and female, are made in the image of God. We need one another. Now, it's true in a sense. I, as an individual, I carry the image of God. I'm made in his image. And that's true of Colleen and Brian and Sophie and Sandy. Each one of us is made in the image of God. But we're not made to be in isolation. We are together the image of God. And there's a particular unique place for the married male-female couple in demonstrating and bearing witness to that image. So Adam wakes up from this deep sleep. And he does what a lot of us have done when we've first laid eyes on the love of our life. He writes a poem. Has anyone here... I'm going to actually ask for a show of hands. Who's ever written a, love, a cheesy love poem about their beloved? Any brave souls? Yes, I've got one. Ooh. I'm not angry. I'm, I'm just disappointed. Good for you, Simon. Right. No, that's fine. Not all of us are poets. Uh, I've written a, a poem um, about my beloved, and, and I won't share it. But his poem goes, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. To me, that speaks to this equality, doesn't it? Actually, this is someone who is not a, not a subordinate. It's not one of the animals. This is a partner. And she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And then man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one. So in this telling of the story, the woman is literally God's gift to man. And I would press that a little further and say it doesn't just go one way. Male and female are part of God's gift to one another. That's true in marriage, which the text here uh, describes that the, the marriage uh, act, both in a general sense and in the physical act of sex, is a coming together, a union, a rejoining of what was separated. Male and female are separate and in marriage they come together. But in a wider sense too, I think it speaks to the beauty of male and female in God's human creation that we need each other. We are different, broadly speaking, very, very similar. And not all women are the same as each other, and not all men are the same as each other. But the difference matters and is a good thing in the world. I want to make a point here before I get to the close about marriage. In 2013, marriage was legally redefined in New Zealand. Most Christians, myself included, still hold to the traditional belief that marriage is a covenant made between one man and one woman. But many today question it, including many people in the church. Much of the questioning and the argument, though... I think revolves around either a kind of a moralistic question 
about whether this is right or wrong. And that often leads us to want, say, a, a proof text. We want one, one text that can say, here's the, here's the answer. And so there's a lot of ink spilled over different texts in the Old and New Testament. But to me, and the reason I remain traditional on that question, it's not as simple as I can just find a place where God says no or yes to that. To me, it, it all comes back to this passage of God's creation in which he builds male and female and gives us the covenant of marriage right at the beginning. It's part of the way that in this text, God has designed and created us to be. And Jesus reiterates this text, doesn't he? When he gets asked about divorce, he says, he, he brings that up again. He says, for this reason, a man shall leave his mother and father, and the two shall become one flesh. To be really honest, uh, as the broader culture goes, traditionalists like me have lost this argument. Because the broader culture does now accept that redefinition of marriage. But I honestly think we lost that argument way before the legislation was changed. And again, I think this is something we lost not because of them, but perhaps because of us. I think we lost that argument every time we considered that our marriage union was all about me. When we began to think that marriage was for my satisfaction, my pleasure, my desire, my prosperity, my prospects, I think we lost the marriage argument when we ceased to see that marriage is a union of two people that is made to bear and express the image of God. And what is the image of God? Jesus Christ. We know what God is like. We know who God is because Jesus came and laid his life down. And John says that we should do the same for one another. So my feeling now that we've lost the so-called culture war is not that we need to go around preaching about what marriage is, although I do believe that we must say that and hold to it. My deeper belief is that our task is to live it and bear witness to it by being willing to lay our lives down for one another. That means self-giving, self-sacrificing, and not being in this for ourselves. Well, that's my three things, three gifts that I think, maybe it's three and a half, that God has given us 
communion with him by breathing his own life into us, that he's given us the world and that he's given us each other, male and female, and within that, this marriage covenant. But Genesis 2 doesn't stand alone as a narrative. It's really part one of two. And in fact, the, as Armand has pointed out before, the sort of chapter divisions kind of are a bit dishonest because chapter 2 and 3 really go together as one big story. And chapter 2 is full of foreshadowing and setups for next week, which is chapter 3. But in particular, I'll just note this. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the Lord commanded them, saying, You, shall surely, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but the, knowledge, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in that day you eat of it, you shall surely die. So this narrative leaves us with a question. The humans, the people, Adam and Eve, have an option, have a question, have a, a choice to make. And next week we're going to find out what they do. Let's close with prayer. Father, I thank you that you are a God who gives. I thank you that every day we wake up, that we have breath in our lungs, we can give thanks to you for the life we have. I thank you that around us is a beautiful world, an amazing creation from the the smallest, tiniest, minute uh, little ant and thing in in the soil and Uh, right up to the stars, the heavens. And we can look at it and we can give thanks for it. And I thank you, God, that you've given each other to us. That's not a good sentence. I thank you, God, that um, we have one another. That we were not made to be alone, that we exist in community of 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 our nation, of our city, of the church, in marriages and families, in friendships. Thank you, God, for all of your good gifts to us. Help us this week to honor those gifts and to live in a way that we receive them joyfully and share them with one another. In Jesus' name, amen.